can you imagine the Roman army, you know, marching across Europe on pastries and coffee? How far would they get? Not very far. That's not what they fed them. You know, or likewise, if you're a farmer or a fisher person, you don't want to be eating so light. And then while you're in the middle of doing your work, you know, you're out in the middle of the field, there's sheep running around and like your blood sugar crashes and, you know, you need, a, you need to go to Starbucks. There's no Starbucks. You're listening to Plant Love Radio, episode number 60. Welcome to Plant Love Radio, a place where you'll discover how to create a balanced, vibrant, and resilient life through the wonders of herbal medicine. I'm your host, Lana Camille, a college professor, drug information pharmacist, and an herbalist. You'll love my amazing guests herbal teachers, clinicians, medicine makers, growers, and artists. Thank you for joining me on this adventure. Let's get the show started. Hello, friends. Food and lifestyle, without a doubt, are the most important contributors to your health and healing. And yet we continue to struggle with them on a daily basis. My today's guest is here to share with us his approach and his thoughts on the topic of food as medicine. I met Todd Caldicott several years ago at an herbal conference and was fascinated by his ideas on food. They're firmly rooted in ancient traditions of Greek, Indian, and Chinese medicine. Todd's own travel explorations and experiences helped him to create a practical model of what food is, how it impacts your health, and how to make the best choices based on your own needs. Todd is a medical herbalist and practitioner of Ayurveda. He has been in practice since 1995. He's a registered professional member of the American Herbalist Guild. Todd is the executive director of the Dogwood School of Botanical Medicine, training aspiring clinicians. He's also an author and editor of three books, Ayurveda, The Divine Science of Life, Food as Medicine, and Ayurveda in Nepal. In today's episode, we cover a lot of different questions. Few of them include what you need to know about Ayurveda and how to incorporate the strategies into your own life, how ancient wisdom helps us to understand the contemporary science of nutrition, and why eating delicious food could be counterproductive to your health, and how to find your dietary home. For links and resources mentioned in today's episode, please head over to the show notes at plantloveradio.com slash 60. Enjoy. Hello, Todd. How are you doing? Good. Thank you, Lana. Uh, really excited to have you here. Thank you for joining me today. You're welcome. I'd like to begin our conversation by uh, learning a little bit more about how you got interested in natural medicine. I know that when you were young, during your teenage years, you were a vegan. Then you ended up in Hollywood, and despite being very successful there, you decided to leave that, and you headed to India. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, yeah, I, I went into the film and television industry right out of high school, and 
I had a reasonably successful career. I just wasn't, I really wasn't orientated towards becoming famous. Uh, I, I never dressed appropriately for auditions and my agent wanted me to do things like shave my eyebrows and get more buff. And he wanted me to go to New York and do soap operas and do commercials. And I just was like, I wasn't interested in that. So eventually I got bored with the whole thing and decided I would travel to the other side of the earth. I would go to India. I would take about, I had about $2,000. And after I got my ticket, I went there and I spent a year traveling around on the cheap, you know, so you imagine, uh, you know, years worth of travel on 2000 bucks isn't a lot of money, but of course it's a lot of money for people living there. And Mm -hmm. this was 1989. So, you know, it certainly was worth more in today's terms, Mm -hmm. but nonetheless, it required that I stayed at the cheapest places. I ate the cheapest food and, you know, I got really sick. Because, you know, I was just, I was a young man. I didn't know anything about taking care of myself. And I ended up getting a really bad case of dysentery. I was traveling with a group of of South Indian musicians, uh, classically trained Carnotic musicians. And uh, they were warming up for an evening's concert. And they were just at someone's home. And this kindly old woman brought me some chopped apple on a plate. Mm-hmm. Apples don't grow in South India. And so she must have gone to the market to get it for me specifically. And so I felt honored and uh, it was unpeeled apple slices. And I just had a couple slices and pretty much within an hour and a half, you know, I just, you know, the wave of diarrhea just began and it just got worse. And eventually I retreated back to my, my hotel or let's say, you know, guest lodge, it wasn't a hotel. And the best I could do was sort of to get up while the room was spinning and stagger to the front desk, you know, buy a, a, a bottle of water, head back to my room, you know, glug, 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 drink the entire bottle, collapse on the bed, wake up 20 minutes later, and then just poop out water and collapse again. And I didn't know how close I was actually to, to dying. It was It was a really bad case. And I didn't have anyone there to to look out for me to tell me what to do. Fortunately, I did have the presence of mind before I left to get a prescription for antibiotics Mm -hmm. and I did hate them and it did save my life for Mm -hmm. sure. It didn't resolve my GI disorder, but it did solve uh, the acute phase of of the disease. But I just continued traveling throughout India with this chronic dysentery and I had many wonderful experiences. I, I, I traveled to all different parts of India, places that many Indians haven't even visited in their own country. Um, you know, far east in the state of Orissa and all the way across the Gangetic Basin uh, into Pakistan. I actually entered into Pakistan during Ramadan, which is the dawn to dusk fast, which is not the best time to travel in Pakistan. And uh, it was like 19... 89, the, the, the Soviets had just been kicked out of Afghanistan. And so there were lots of Mujahideen, lots of CIA around. It was very politically unstable. I had a very interesting journey to get all the way up to the north of Pakistan to um, visit a little area called Hanza, which is sort of renowned in natural medicine circles as, as being the, the place of the healthy Hanzas. 
it was quite remarkable to travel up there. You travel through these really steep mountain passes, you know, and I used to live in the Rockies, so I'm familiar with steep mountain passes. These are like four times, five times the height of, of the ones in the Rockies, just, you know, enormous on these, on these roads that have been chiseled out from the rock face. Mm -hmm. And, um, it follows Marco Polo's trail actually up through the mountain passes, quite a barren landscape until you round the corner in Hunza and, it was just like Shangri-La. It was just this, um, it was springtime when I arrived and it was these steeply terrace slopes all swathed in pink because the apricots were in blossom. So apricots are a big food in Hunza. And, you know, I settled in there. I was staying with someone and, and nailed to the door was this little plastic baggie with a couple batteries and a little note saying, you know, please don't bring things like this into our valley because we don't know what to do with them. Mm-hmm. They don't have waste disposal, all right? So it was it was quite um, pristine area, quite closed off from the rest of the world. I think it's sort of shifted a little bit now. You can get flights up there, but it's still quite remote. And I just spent the, the few weeks I was up there drinking glacial water and eating their food. They have this habit of collecting the glacial water in cisterns and because it's rich with this sort of glacial silt that they they actually collect this silt and they add it to their gardens, but also they add it to their food as well, to their bread, to other to other foods. And it given that I was recovering from this this case of chronic dysentery and I was had lost a lot of weight and wasn't doing well, it was quite remarkable to feel sort of life energy pouring into my system. It was I've never actually quite felt anything quite like that where just you know day after day I could just feel stronger, stronger, and I could go on hikes up um, behind the villages, remarkable hikes where, you know, you're hiking through these uh, uh, these mountain passes and littered all around you are crystals coming from the ground. And it's just a, an amazing area to, to visit. And, I, and um, I left that area feeling quite a bit better. I hadn't spent there long enough to fully recover and perhaps I wouldn't even still. But nonetheless, I went on my way and traveled down through uh, the tribal territories in Pakistan, edge, the edge of Afghanistan, and then eventually into the south of Iran. And I entered into Iran at the end of uh, Ramadan, and Ramadan, as they say there, and uh, spent, uh, discontinued my journey west, traveled through, through Iran, ended up in a little, or actually a very famous city called Shiraz, where I met some Darvish, some Sufis. And I spent the next several weeks with them. I actually was initiated into their Sufi brotherhood and um, continued my journey after that northward until I finally got attacked by the Islamic Revolutionary Guard near the uh, Caspian Sea, a little town called Astara. I was thrown into the back of a pickup uh, with four guys, two of them with machine guns, and was interrogated. Needless to say, um, I, I left the country pretty soon after that. You know, uh, went into Turkey, got all the way to Istanbul and saw my first McDonald's, jumped on the airplane and flew back to Sri Lanka where I where I continued my my uh, travels and actually spent most of my time in Sri Lanka studying Buddhism. And then I went back to India after that. So I kind of did a big circuit. Mm -hmm. it, it sounds like quite an adventure. But like, why did you go back to India? What was the main pool, the main attraction? And how did you get better? So I certainly went back to India later, but when I came back to Canada, I was just doing unwell. I wasn't doing very well, rather. And, you know, I had, 
I was still a vegetarian. I had learned in India that in order to just keep any weight on me that I couldn't be a vegetarian. Of course, I was just eating at mostly restaurants. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, um, I did have to eat some meat at certain points just to stay healthy. But back in Canada, I was trying to follow that lifestyle and just just wasn't doing well. And I sought help from a number of different practitioners from the medical profession, from Chinese herbalists, mm-hmm. from a naturopath. One naturopath was convinced I had candida and you know put me on like seven, eight months of a candida cleanse, which did absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't until I met an, a physician of Ayurveda, who was the first one to tell me what to eat, when to eat it. Uh, what kind of lifestyle I should follow, and gave him some very simple medications. And pretty soon, within about a month and a half or so, uh, I was more or less cured, began to start gaining weight. And I was so inspired by that, I I wanted to study Ayurveda, but there was nowhere to study. Mm -hmm. But at that time, there was a new college that had just opened up, teaching sort of the British medical, the physiomedicalist uh, school of herbal medicine, And so I enrolled in that program and continued my training with uh, my my Ayurveda physician, sort of a gurukula model where you study personally, as well as going to school full time. And then after I completed my training, that was about four years later, I went to India to continue postgraduate study at a hospital called the Ayurveda Chikitsalam in Coimbatore. So I spent a half a year there. And then came back to Canada and began my practice in uh, officially in 97. Okay. Tell us a little bit more about your fascination with Ayurveda. Someone that might never heard of the some of the main concepts of Ayurveda, what would you mm-hmm. tell them? What is Ayurveda? Well, Ayurveda is one of the oldest systems of medicine in the world. Um and it's probably the inspiration for many of the systems of natural medicine that we see today. There are elements of Ayurveda you can find within Chinese medicine, within Greco-Roman medicine or Yunani medicine. Mm-hmm. It's been around a long time, and it's integrated with a philosophical approach to life, a spiritual approach to life but also with all the other branches of, of science in mm-hmm. the ancient Vedic system. So um, astronomy and archaeology, mathematics, it's language, grammar, it's all connected, mm-hmm. really. And so Ayurveda just is able to draw on a lot of different disciplines to bolster itself and has remained pretty much unchanged for thousands of years, mm-hmm. whereas all the other systems of medicine – They've, they've undergone upheaval and, and some degree of damage to their system. Even most recently, say, in Chinese medicine, when the communists took over and kind of gutted at the heart of Chinese medicine and removed a lot of the sp- psycho-spiritual elements of Chinese medicine, that didn't happen exactly to Ayurveda. Ayurveda certainly has been damaged because India has been, you know, suffered waves of invasion for the last thousand years or so. And so this certainly has damaged its integrity. There used to be a school of surgery in mm-hmm. Ayurveda, and, and that's been lost. Mm-hmm. You no know, one really practices surgery anymore. Uh, maybe some minor surgery, but in the classical texts, they were performing major surgery, not just cesareans, but abdominal surgery, uh, brain surgery, like removing parasites from the brain. So you know, they had some pretty advanced techniques, which is quite remarkable when you think about 
the, 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 the type of logic that they use, the frame of reference that they use, it's not the same as we would observe here in the West. You know, we our, our thinking is very much influenced by Greco-Roman thought, by Aristotle, and the scientific method that derives from that type of approach. Right. You know, our Western scientific model is very much rooted in what I refer to as a, um, a model of quantification. You know, you need, a, you need data in order to understand something. And if you don't generate data, then you can't really understand it or analyze it from a sort of Western scientific framework. What's interesting is that Ayurveda is a very sophisticated system of medicine, and yet doesn't really adhere to this model of quantification. It doesn't really require data in the same way, a data set to make sense of something. Ayurveda is orientated towards the subjective experience, how something feels, what I call a model of quality or what they call guna in Sanskrit. And it's just a very different way to look at the world. You know, one, the scientific model is an objective model. And it's not actually, you're not actually observing reality. You're sort of create, on the side creating a model of reality and then comparing the two to see how good your model is. Mm-hmm. In Ayurveda, what you're doing is you're understanding how, you, how it feels. What, what is the experience of connecting with reality? And so when a, when a Ayurveda physician is analyzing or assessing a patient, you know, certainly I will look at lab tests and other anthropometric measures of health. But ultimately, it comes down to how the patient feels, right? I mean, we use the word disease. It it's, relates to an experience, not something that can be objectively determined per se. So all, all the treatments are oriented towards ameliorating or dealing with that subjective experience. You know, it's only really in Western medicine where you can actually claim a cure and the patient feels worse, where in Ayurveda, that would never be the case. You know, the patient definitely has to feel better, not simply from a symptomatic perspective, but in terms of the resolution of the issue. You know, just think about some of the most important experiences that we need to have as human beings, like the experience of love. It's not something that you can quantify. And if you do, if you spend all your time trying to quantify your experience of love, you know, does this person love me enough? Not enough. I mean, is it 83%? Is it you know, 20%? What is it exactly? It isn't a recipe for actually experiencing love. Hmm. Right? You don't walk around with a love meter and try to find the answer. And yet we all know the importance of love and the connection that it engenders. And so Ayurveda is orientated towards understanding that experience through the manifestation of quality. So understanding the, the experience of hot, cold, heavy, light, wet, dry, all these different paired qualities and you can develop this multi-dimensional model of someone's experience of their own health and how to develop a battery of measures that will help to ameliorate it. So if someone is feeling hot, for example, it might not just be physically hot, you know, like burning skin or burning sensation in their body, fever. Uh, it might also be that they're feeling agitated and irritable uh, or they're feeling very impatient and angry. And in Ayurveda, we're going to be using generally something that's cooling to pacify that. But that that cooling measure could come from a number of different sources. It could be food. It could be medicinal plants. It could be lifestyle measures. It could be a change in climate. It could be a change in the relationships. You know, um, you know. So if you're spending a lot of time with like really passionate, uh, you know, hot people, then and you're feeling a lot of heat yourself, then you know maybe you need to cultivate some 
for a while anyway, some different friendships, some different connections. So Ayurveda really approaches health from this holistic model and seeks to connect to someone's subjective experience and, and use this model of quality to ameliorate those imbalances. Thank you. So a couple of times you mentioned the concept of Western medicine. I read an article that you wrote some time ago about challenges with Western practitioners thinking about Ayurveda. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I think it's just this shift in ontology, just how to look at the world in a very different way. We're always looking to see what is the mechanism. Why is why is why is this working? What is the the mechanism? And and the thing is, there never really is one mechanism of anything working. I mean, just look at your own life. Any major event that happened in your life, there were a number of different factors that led to that event happening. You know, there is no single cause. So we always have to look at these multiple causes. But it's really difficult to understand all these multiple causes from a mathematical perspective. Mm-hmm. It just gets extremely complicated. You know, if you if you appreciate medicinal plants, just think of all, all of the hundreds of secondary plant metabolites and mm-hmm. how they work in synergistic ways. How do you how do you quantify that? Right. Right. And yet by understanding the quality, we can easily apply it in, in different clinical situations. And it's almost like what the subjective feeling qualitative experience is, is, is representative of a very complex mathematical algorithm that we can't even begin to understand or probe. We've got these supercomputers, our own brain, our own feeling, our own experiences. You know, I'm sure certainly there probably will be at some point some way to analyze that. Maybe, maybe not. But I think we need to appreciate it that it 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 has its own internal logic and its own wisdom that extends beyond our ability to rationalize it or understand it. And it just relates to that that aspect of feeling. You know, that's what you're trying to do. That's what I try to when I work with my patients is it's all about connecting with feeling. They have to feel heard. They have to feel supported. They have to feel inspired. You know, and if it's just me from a very top down hierarchical approach, just saying I'm the practitioner, this is the medicine, you go off and do what I tell you. Of course, those that that relationship has to exist to some extent, but also there has to be some good feeling behind it. There has to be some. Um, connection beyond just the sort of linear experience. Otherwise, it doesn't inspire. Thank you. So you you talked a little bit about medicinal plants, and I know that you mentioned that you studied medicinal plants first, and you continued to study Ayurveda. How were you able to integrate the two seamlessly? Were you just working with Ayurvedic plants, or were you uh, utilizing Western plants as well? That's what I'm, uh, I guess, I what I'm trying to ask. I was studying all of it. Mm-hmm. I was learning about Ayurveda medicinal plants while I was studying Western medicinal plants and Chinese herbs as well. And you know, when I was going through my training, essentially as a as a as a you know British medical herbalist style type training, it was definitely more kind of technical and analytical. You know, we had to memorize all the constituents and the in the the pharmacognosy and pharmacology. That was an important part of the of the training. So I, I I had exposure and learning in in that area, but I I my experience was after I went through that training that I was kind of lost. You know, mm-hmm. I was my head was so filled with information, I didn't really know how to use it. Mm-hmm. Whereas 
prior to that, even before I began my training, uh, I had an intuitive sense that I could connect to that uh, I could employ with success. But I, uh, that was kind of all rooted out of me with this more academic training. And it took me a number of years to, to get that back. I also spent some time as a, I call as a bush herbalist, as a, as a wild crafter. Mm-hmm. So I, I lived in the West Kootenays for a while, which is in southeastern British Columbia. And I would, I was fascinated by the local flora. And so I would study that and head off in the bush and, and harvest medicinal plants and make various preparations and sell them to some of the local stores. Mm-hmm. That's before the, the current regulations that we have now, which make that basically impossible. But so I was able to gain some good experience connecting with the local plants and understanding that, you know, from the perspective of Ayurveda, that's ultimately what we're trying to do is connect someone with this notion of dharma. Dharma means something in the Hindu context or Buddhist context, but in relation to Ayurveda, dharma means the natural way of things. So what we're trying to do is reestablish that natural order. And it's not a human orientated perspective you know we are we are drawing upon the cues of nature to to understand what that is it's it's not like a top-down approach where we're trying to impose a system of logic upon nature ayurveda is is something that emanates from the ground up it's something that uh, is, is a manifestation of our relationship to the, our correct relationship with nature one that is mutually supportive so that's what i'm trying to do is connect to this notion of dharma and so that was an important part of being a bush herbalist and being out there and and studying the local medicinal plants and and seeing that you know we have we have just as good if not better medicinal plants in our neck of the woods better in the sense that often they're a lot more uh, pure and uncontaminated you know mm-hmm. in these country of you know a billion plus people so yeah, there's a lot of people, and there's a lot of contamination of of herb herb material, of herbal products. It's, it's an ongoing issue with with uh, Ayurveda herbal products and and other products. So I, I I think very much from the perspective of Ayurveda, we need to connect with our local environment, with the local plants. That ultimately is what Ayurveda is, and we kind of got to get 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 over the the semantical differences. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, it's a system that's based in Sanskrit. Uh, it has maybe some unfamiliar attributes. The language certainly can become a bit of um, an inhibitor. But I think it's important to understand where its orientation really does lie, which is learning how to connect with what is in your local environment, you know, and because you are a product of your local environment. And that makes so much sense. And I think that the next uh, direction that I would like to explore, uh, which is food and nutrition and uh, just your experience with that, is a perfect uh, continuation of this because what's more natural, what's more real, what's more local than your food? I know that this is something that you have been learning about, teaching about. We talked a little bit about your original roots or how you started, but I wanted to ask you to talk about like what you see in today's world. You go on social media or you read websites or you read articles and there are different camps. People Mm -hmm. are talking about vegan diet or ketogenic diet. And so you always see different sides of the spectrum. Talk a little bit about just the philosophy and your approach to food and food as medicine. Why is it so important and how you think about it, not in terms of 
this is what you should eat for breakfast, but just how you think about food being something that heals you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't have a sort of a gimmicky approach or a paint by numbers approach when it comes to diet. The, my book, Food is Medicine, it's very much unlike a lot of so-called nutrition or diet books out there because it doesn't prescribe a particular way of eating. Mm -hmm. So that can be kind of baffling to people because I actually talk about lots of different ways to eat because, you know, there, you know, that old Arabic saying that there are as many paths to God as there are rays of the sun. So, you know, we're all each unique and individual and unique in circumstances. And so we need to adapt to that. There are some general principles and ideas which apply to everybody. And then within that, there are these very unique, distinctive differences that we need to honor. So I don't have a simplistic approach to diet. There are some basic concepts around uh, nutrition and, and feeding the body and mind and what the prerequisites, prerequisites are to achieve that. Uh, there are some gender differences between male and female. There are differences between young and old, uh, with climactic differences. So there's so many factors. And I think what we need to do is, on the one hand, understand the individual, what their needs are and the context for their needs, you know, what their age is, what their, what their gender is, where they're living, what their ancestry is, what their disease is. There's all these factors that relate to them and then look at the, 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 the source of food, all the different aspects that we can draw upon. I'm not someone who also is um, get, get sort of hung up on that we have to follow certain ways of things, you know, like people are always sort of outdoing each other, especially on social media. You know, there used to be like the hundred mile diet and then people were doing the 10 mile diet and then people doing the zero mile diet. And it's just the sort of competitiveness, which it doesn't really make sense to me. You know, if you're lucky, if you're fortunate, then you can grow your own food or you can, you can get it locally from your neighbor. You know, where I live here in, in Powell river, there's a there's a farm that's just a couple houses away. I can get all my produce here for much of the year. But also there's sometimes the year where I can't and I have to rely on some degree of imported food. Some might say if I was an absolutist, you know, I should go up there and I should harvest my own food and, you know, hunt and stuff like that. And I to that I say, well, I, I can't do everything. I can't be everything. Mm -hmm. I only can do what I can do. And I think that's that says a lot if you can speak to your intent and do the best that you can do and not really worry about whether or not you can always buy organic or not, you know, especially, uh, you know, because it's organic can be really expensive for people, especially if you have a family, you might not be able to afford everything organic and, and then people feel guilty about that and, you know, and, and come up with some weird rules. I remember there was one patient I had after Fukushima happened, she had heard that there was radioactive fallout and it was contaminating vegetables. And so she wasn't eating any vegetables. And I was like, mm -hmm. no, you got to eat vegetables, <laughs> you know? And so, you know, people can kind of come up with these sort of strange rules or limitations that just aren't very practical. So I, you know, I, I certainly adhere to a phil philosophical approach it's just not one philosophy, but I also very much grounded in the practical. And there are just many ways to eat. 
Could you talk a little bit more about your philosophical approach to it? Yeah, okay, okay. well, um, well, I mean, it's rooted in Ayurveda, right? So Ayurveda gives me the framework to understand how to approach an individual and how to approach their diet and how to uh, balance the imbalanced qualities that might be present, you know, whether someone's too cold or too dry, too hot, too wet, too heavy, too light, and, and to match the food, the diet, lifestyle practices, so that those imbalanced qualities can, 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 can be rebalanced. Mm -hmm. And, you know, food is such a wonderful way to do that because food always works in a very gradual way. And so you'll never, well, you can, but you'll tend to bring someone back to a state of balance as opposed to what medications do is they can be very strong and push someone too far the other way. And they just kind of undulate back and forth and not actually find the balance. So food is the first place to start with a patient. And that's why I wrote my book, Food is Medicine, because I saw that if I was just prescribing medicines, often people weren't getting better because they didn't know how to eat. So you know, just the basics of how to eat, you know, we've lost these things, these things that we would have inherited from our parents who would have inherited from their parents, especially here in the Western world, because we rely so much on prepackaged foods that people don't know how to cook anymore. Even the most basic things, they just simply don't know how to, how to prepare them. Um, and that becomes a big determinant uh, in their ability to take care of themselves and take care of their family. So that's often where I start is like, how do you cook? How do you, how do you prepare these foods in, in, in healthy ways that help support digestion? It, it's fascinating to me that you're mentioning this. You go on Netflix and you watch documentaries about uh, food and cooking and then we have star chefs. And yet it's true that there are fewer people that know how to cook and that are comfortable with this. And I think part of it is because of the commercialization and what we're, what we're seeing around us. The other thing, too, is that people think that with all those celebrity television shows and whatnot, that food always has to taste delicious. And in fact, that can be counterproductive. You know, we have an imbalanced relationship with food. Food is nourishment, ultimately. We're trying to nourish the body. And delicious food can sometimes be counterproductive to that purpose. There is a there's a approach to, to correcting someone's um, digestion that we use in Ayurveda called samsarjanakrama. And it basically consists of, uh, it means the graduated diet, it consists of giving the patient small amounts of very bland tasting food in increasing amounts over a period of three to five to seven days. And you know, ultimately ending up with something like we would call like kitchari, right? It's very simple, very bland, and it's required in order to orientate someone's digestion correctly, that they eat food, which isn't all that delicious, because then they get those satiety signals, which is, all right, I'm done. I don't need to eat anymore. Whereas I often find you know, with some of my patients who are kind of gourmands is that they overeat. They eat too much of the wrong foods continuously. They can't help themselves because they just make it too good. Sometimes food is just food. And we need to have a very simple relationship with it. Just like with anything, we just have to strip away all of the um, extraneous uh, stuff to get to what the heart of it is. And that's very much my approach with diet is figuring out what is the core diet 
for this individual? What can I teach them about this core diet that they can practice and follow and incorporate in their lives and utilize as a tool that whenever they are feeling better and they're off eating whatever food and they start to feel unwell, what's the diet that they can kind of retreat to, to kind of reconsolidate their health, to fortify themselves so that they can continue to expand and grow and explore different things. But I think we all need that. It's like finding your, your, your dietary home. I find it very interesting that you talk about how bland the food should be from time to time because sometimes things do not taste the same way as they used to taste. Or maybe like I'm missing certain things. And I find a lot of people mention the same things, that food doesn't taste as good as it did maybe 15 years ago, 20 years ago. I'm wondering if maybe you're too used to all the stimulant mm -hmm. flavors that you're getting is the reason that you're not getting the same experience. So, Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's just like with drugs, right? If, you're, if you take opiates or cannabis on a regular basis, it's just going to dull the receptors and you're going to require more and more of that stimulus to, to feel the effect. So likewise, if you, are, you know, eat really heavily flavored foods, uh, it is going to diminish your capacity to discern mm -hmm. subtle differences. And so it's important that we retrain it. And, you know, and You know, because Ayurveda is obviously associated with Indian food, and a lot of people associate Indian food with hot, spicy food. They kind of they kind of get this general impression that that's the way people eat in Ayurveda, and that isn't the case at all. Actually, traditional, classical, the food of Ayurveda is very mild. It's very mildly spiced. It's not it doesn't have a lot of chili in it. It doesn't, or often traditionally doesn't have any chili in it because chili, of course, is from mm -hmm. South America, is Central America. Um, and it was only recently incorporated into the Indian diet. So, yeah, people have a lot of sort of false impressions about what, you know, what a particular diet is and what is what is sustainable. Uh, I think that we should learn to be content with very simple, plain, bland foods and certainly enjoy uh, highly flavored foods periodically. But if we rely on them continuously, it, it will diminish our ability to sense and discern differences. Do you uh, pay attention to contemporary knowledge and science of food that we are bombarded with? This ingredient is good. This ingredient is not so good. How do you process just the sheer volume of nutrition information, the, all the new science on food, and uh, how do you bring it back to the traditional knowledge for your students, for your clients, for your patients? Yeah, well, I, I think it's the nature of science to go through this iterative process of discovery. And with the media, there is this tendency towards fetishization. So, you know, we have the, you know, the, the flavor of the month, you know, or the concept of the month, you know, that, you know, wine will increase your risk of breast cancer. You no know, wine is, you know, good for cardiovascular health. And, you know, the media kind of undulates between these extremes. And that's what the media does. It sells confusion. So people become reliant or dependent upon the media for their information instead of kind of stripping that away and seeing for themselves, well, what, what is the impact of wine? on my body? How do I feel when I have it? How do when I really listen to my body? So that's what I'm always trying to bring people back to is listening to their body and drawing upon this rich source of tradition. You know, you know, I, I as you 
because if you're interested in herbal medicine, you might be able to appreciate that that there one time was a lot of skepticism with regard to herbs, and there still is, you know. It's because the experts say, well, we just don't know the mechanism of action. We don't know how they work, so they're, therefore they mm-hmm. are unsafe. Well, I mean, if we had that approach with food, then we wouldn't be eating, you know, because we've been, you know, pre- you know uh, gathering and hunting and preparing food and making all kinds of wonderful dishes and sustaining populations, feeding mothers and babies for thousands and thousands of years without knowing the science behind it. You know, just because we now know the science behind it doesn't mean that we actually know anything more, you know, how to make a good meal, a nourishing meal. There are these little differences. And sometimes science can find something that is really important that we didn't see before. So I certainly include that as well. But I'm, I'm a big believer in empirical evidence but not one that just wholly consists of the sort of rational linear model. If someone is undertaking a practice and it leads to benefit, and you can see that that benefit is repeating itself over generations, over hundreds, thousands of years, I think you have to give that a lot of weight. Otherwise, if you didn't, then, you know, we would have to reevaluate every single aspect of our culture and our interaction because you know we've been operating on these principles that we developed through our own intuitive traditional understanding very interesting can you think of situation where either you have received or have given maybe best health wellness and nutrition advice uh well let's see you at the outset i don't know if this is part of the the recording but you asked me about or you alluded to the fact that i i often tell people to to shift the way they eat the pattern of the way they eat ayurveda suggests that we really should only be eating twice a day which is a bit of a shock to some people mm-hmm. especially over the last 20 30 years because the advice that's been coming from n- nutritional circles has been to eat several small meals throughout the day you know, the way people sort of explain, well, I'm a grazer, you know, I'll eat five or six times a day. You know, we wonder why we have all these metabolic issues, you know, and essentially what you're trying to do is you're just using a stopgap measure to accommodate, you know, blood sugar fluctuations to kind of keep yourself at kind of a a high level. Um, And mostly it's rapidly digesting carbohydrates. Now, of course, there is um, all of this interest in intermittent fasting, and what I find it funny is, is that it's basically what I've been saying for thousands of years, which is, yeah, don't eat so much. You know, all you need is really two meals a day. You know, mm-hmm. unless you're a warrior and you're, you know, like an athlete or you're, um, you know, a nursing mother or a little child. Adults don't need to eat that much. You know, we just need to eat twice a day and it needs to be spaced out enough to give your body a chance to fully digest it, you know. What is when you're eating five or six times a day, you're filling up your stomach and your stomach is just emptying before you're adding more food and you're never giving your, 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 your stomach a chance to kind of collapse and rest and allow the blood and energy to focus on a different part of the digestive tract. You're sort of continuously interrupting that process and that's a big no-no in Ayurveda. So this idea of, of delaying your meal, your first meal until around 9, 10, 11 o'clock in the morning uh, is is actually really optimal, I find, for a lot of my patients and to make sure that they're eating a meal that is going to sustain them 
as opposed to the typical meal we might have in the West, which would be kind of light. You know, it would be some cereal or it would be some fruit or a smoothie. You know, that just sets you up for your blood sugar to crash an hour and a half later. And then, you know, and I, I've been there. I've done that. I know what that's like. You know, I've been in clinic after I've eaten like that, after I've had a bowl of oatmeal with some apple and a little bit of brown sugar. And then an hour and a half later, I'm in clinic and I'm starting to get a little shaky and irritable. And I got to run out and grab a coffee and a muffin or something just to keep myself functional, This, you know, to, to get myself until lunch hour. Uh, and then, you know, advise my patients not to do the same thing that I was doing. Right. So I stopped that years ago and eat a breakfast, which is richer in fat and protein, which when you look at it, all traditional cultures, that's what people ate for their first meal. It was a savory meal. It was something that contained those ingredients to have a neurostabilizing effect. The, the, the analogy would be like to instead of trying to keep the fire going with, with kindling, you, once the fire is going, you throw in a big, heavy piece of wood and lock mm-hmm. stove and it burns for eight, nine hours. You know, so you look at all the traditional farmer breakfasts, especially in the UK and in Europe, you know, it wasn't a, it wasn't oatmeal. It wasn't cereal. It wasn't some pastries. I remember having an Italian patient, you know, I said, so what do people eat in, in Italy? And she said, Oh, you know, we have pastry, coffee. And I was like, can you imagine the Roman army, you know, marching across Europe on pastries and coffee? How far would they get? Mm-hmm. very far that's not what they fed them you know or likewise if you're a farmer or a fisher person you don't want to be eating so light and then while you're in the middle of doing your work you know you're out in the middle of the field there's sheep running around and like your blood sugar crashes and you know you need a you need to go to starbucks there's no starbucks so you eat in such a fashion to nourish and sustain yourself and then make sure you eat again before the end of the day before the sun sets that's kind of the model that we use in Ayurveda. But this second meal is a little smaller. It's not so heavy because your digestion models the path of the sun across the sky. Right. So that's what I mean about Ayurveda is very much connected to this concept of dharma is we, you know, digestion is a function of, a, of the sun. It's where mm-hmm. it's the embodiment of that heating solar energy within us. And so we're these diurnal creatures. So as the sun rises, our digestive fire increases, our metabolism increases, and that's when we want to be consuming the nutrients we need to get through the day. And then as the sun begins to get lower on the horizon, our digestion, our metabolism begins to slow down. You know, and unfortunately, what a lot of people do in the West is they eat light for their first meal and then snack throughout the day and then have this big, massive meal at the end of the day. And they wonder why they've got digestive problems, why they've got reflux, why they've got metabolic issues uh, that needs to be flipped. It's just a basic it sort of speaks to our disconnection as a culture, you know, that Mm -hmm. live these um, these lives that aren't really rooted in. Um, sort of a grounded, earthy experience. And if they were, you know, if we were sort of working harder and working with our bodies more, then we would quickly tune in to the fact that, yeah, we can eat like this and, and it'd be sustainable. And I, I think if you were to eat two meals a day, you have to completely shift how you prepare your meals and when you prepare your meals and like what yes. exactly you are consuming for breakfast versus dinner so or for that lunch versus dinner. So I think it, it would require a pretty drastic psychological shift more than anything else. Well, the other part of it too, and it's, it's actually it's mentioned in the epilogue of my book, Food is Medicine, is that the... Active eating is a is a 
act of communion. Mm-hmm. It's a communal act. And only recently in the history of humanity have we been living these isolated, individuated lives where we've been preparing our own meals by ourselves. That's never the case. In most traditional cultures, you go into someone's home, you know, grandma and grandpa are there in the background. There's a pot of stew on the stove. You know, there's, 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 there's a whole network of nourishment that's happening that we don't have connection to. We've got all the conveniences. We can go to 7-Eleven and Pizza Hut and, you know, 3 a.m. in the morning and get whatever we want. But that's not nourishment. It's mm-hmm. food, but it's not nourishment. And so I, I really think that in our approach to food, we can't look at it as an isolated, individuated act. It has to be a function of, of community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you for that. You are an executive director of the Dogwood School of Botanical Medicine, yeah. and you also have written three books, and I will make sure that I include the links to all three of them in the show notes. But can you talk a little bit about the offerings that you have in the school, in the Dogwood School of Botanical Medicine? What are some of the courses that our listeners could explore or potentially take? Sure. So, yeah, I, you know, I went to school, the classical model that we're all familiar with. It's what I refer to as the Austrian school. It's basically a very kind of militaristic model, kind of top down. You've got the teacher at the front of the classroom. It's kind of like the general and, uh, or the king. And then you've got all the students that are like soldiers and serfs. And it's a one way flow of, of information, you know, where you're just, it's rote memorization and there's not a lot of actual learning that's happening. And I see that in Ayurveda. Ayurveda traditionally was taught according to a Gurukula model, where it was a very Socratic method of, of, of education. Lots of different subjects were discussed. It wasn't like a linear system or approach or pedagogical approach. And now Ayurveda is being taught in the college system, you know, where people are having to cram for exams. And, and I've observed that their knowledge when they graduate just isn't, it just isn't at par with what the traditional physicians know and understand. So the, I developed the school on the basis of the Socratic model with, you know, using modern technology and, and obviously there are some limitations. Uh, so we have like a slate of online programs that help support learning that you can learn at home. One program called Inside Ayurveda, which is a very uh, technical introduction to Ayurveda. I, I say it's an introduction, but most people that take it are like, this is advanced uh, so it would be like an intermediate advanced introduction <laughs> to Ayurveda, okay. very comprehensive approach to Ayurveda. Um, I've got another program called Food is Medicine. It's based on my book. It's just a lot more sophisticated and detailed and complex the material in it than the book because the book I wrote for patients. So the book comes along with the, the, the program, but there's also lots of other notes and slides that help to incorporate uh, this knowledge in a practical way. And then I have a program called Phytomedica, which is a synthesis of different systems of medicine, Ayurveda, Chinese medicine, Yunani, Western herbal medicine, and also Western medicine. And it's a sort of problem-orientated system-by-system approach, looking at the digestive system and different pathologies and how we would address them from a medical, Chinese, Ayurveda, Yunani, Western herbal perspective. And we're actually just completing that program Um We've finished it this coming fall, and then it'll all be ready uh, for for basically online correspondence. 
Okay. That's kind of the first tier that students can study. And then uh, after that, then we have like a group intensive program where we bring students together for for like a week to two weeks to study these different subject areas in detail in person, bring in other teachers that can also help to facilitate some of that knowledge. You know, I was the 2014 visiting Mitchell Scholar at Bastyr University, and I saw NDs go through this five-year training program, and I just saw how they really suffered from this, this pedagogical approach, where all the information is dripped out and distributed over a five-year period. And and it, it ends up creating a lot of confusion. So when someone would come to study in the group intensive program and review like the digestive system, we're going to study all of that intensively within a two-week period so that when you leave there, you've got all this information, all these notes, video, uh, all this experience that you had that you can consolidate to help you. So you, you, you really understand it. Like if I want to teach you anything, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you. You know, I'm not going to like if I'm gonna teach you how to drive a car or do anything like cook. The first step isn't to go into the classroom and start pointing to a blackboard and say, this is a steering wheel. This is a pot. You know, you're going to come into the kitchen. You're going to come into the into the car and we're going to we're going to show you how to do it. You know, so it's real world experience. And then we also have clinical training that students can can uh, tack on to that additional training. And then mm-hmm. uh, for the last 15, 16 years, I've been working with this 800-year-old hereditary Buddhist Ayurveda tradition in Nepal. It's actually the oldest surviving lineage of Ayurveda in the Mm -hmm. world. Uh, And I take students to Nepal for a minimum of five weeks to Mm -hmm. study Ayurveda. So the students are learning clinical techniques, but also pharmacy techniques, how to make medicines that I know I have I have um, students that were studying at places like the Ayurvedic Institute in Albuquerque. They would never be able to learn how to make these medicines because there isn't the expertise. But these people are these people are students are learning how to make these classical Ayurveda preparations, you know, um, over this five week period. I mean, some of these medicines literally take 20 years to make. So obviously we can't teach those ones, but we can show components mm-hmm. of it. But, you know, how to make remedies like the chavan prash that's a three-day that's a three-day remedy preparation mm-hmm. how to make very simple basma we made gudanti basma last time and how to make these uh, medicated herbal pills and medicated oils so students come out with a lot of practical knowledge wonderful thank you so how do our listeners find you they can do it through my school website as dogwoodbotanical.com mm-hmm uh, the Dogwood School of Botanical Medicine. Dogwood is the provincial flower of British Columbia, so it's an easy one, Dogwood Botanical. And then I also have my clinic site, which is just my name, toddcaldicott.com. Todd, before we say goodbye to each other, I wanted to ask you if you have any parting words of wisdom for us. I think I touched on it earlier. I think you really need to listen to your body, listen to yourself. You have this supercomputer at your disposal. And I think that in many cases we're taught to mistrust that. And it doesn't mean that you should rely upon that solely. You know, it's important to gather knowledge and information from as many sources as possible. But ultimately the arbiter of all of that is going to be how you feel and how it connects with your feeling experience. And if we learn how to do that, 
You know, we can we can have our head in the sky, head in the clouds, but if our feet are firmly rooted on the ground, then we can kind of connect that energy. So just really practice in listening to your own wisdom, creating space for that. And I often will ask myself questions about important things and just create as much openness within me so that that answer arises in a very organic fashion. So I think we really need to honor that process. Thank you so much. There is so much wisdom in that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lana. Thank you so much for joining us for this conversation with Todd Caldicott. If you would like to check out any of the resources and links mentioned in today's episode, please head over to the show notes at plantloveradio.com slash 60. Are you listening to Plant Love Radio for the first time? Please subscribe to the podcast to seamlessly get future episodes downloaded to your device. I'm so thrilled to introduce you to many amazing guests and topics. And of course, nothing says thank you better than sharing this show with a friend who might enjoy it and giving us a five-star rating and review. Thank you so much in advance. The music you hear in the introduction was written by a neighbor of mine, David Scholl, and is called Something About Cat. My deepest gratitude to Bill Gilligan for this opportunity to play it. Thanks again for being here today. I really appreciate you. Till the next time, thank you for loving plants and planting love. Mm-hmm.